you know, that that to me is like the first glaring thing is, you know, is this plot going to be big enough to support um, the number of miles I have on the property? Because if it's not, it's going to be a failure regardless of what you do in terms of soil amendment or, you know, the seed that you get or, or whatever else, you know, it's, it's a complete waste of effort and you need to consider either planting something different or making the plot bigger. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and if you're a food plotter or just interested in learning more about food plots, then you're definitely going to enjoy this week's episode. Uh, We're talking with Mark Turner from the University of Tennessee about all things food plot preparation, uh, from site selection to soil test and how to understand those soil tests applying lime and fertilizer, planting techniques, weed control, and, and a whole lot more. Uh, Mark really gets into a deep dive into the subject, so much so that we're, we're going to call this part one because we're, we're definitely going to have to have Mark back on at a later date, sometime later this year, to really finish out the topic because there, there's so many avenues you can go down with food plots, and we can only cover so much in the the over an hour that that we talked and so this is mainly focused, this episode is mainly focused on kind of the preparation side of things uh, with some species selection and stuff mixed in there, but uh, a lot about preparing your food plot at, so you can get maximum results. So I know you, you guys who are interested in that, which, which a lot of you are, I can, I can tell because those are always our most downloaded episodes whenever it comes to food plots and habitat. So I know you guys are really going to enjoy this one. Hey, before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by longtime NDA sponsor, Renews Outdoor Equipment, makers of the Furminator food plot implement. Uh, the Furminator is a rugged, professional-grade, all-in-one food plot implement uh, with adjustable discs to break the soil. It's got a seed hopper to drop the seed at a set rate and a cult packer to pack the seed into the soil. Uh, so it makes it possible to complete the entire planting process in just one pass. So if you want to take your food plot planning to the next level, check out the Furminator at theferminator.com. Also, this is the last call on your chance to win a coveted Kentucky either sex elk tag. Uh, This is a once in a lifetime opportunity to chase big bull elk in the mountains of eastern Kentucky. And hey, not only will the winner get that coveted elk tag, which, you know, that's that's a prize in itself. But you're also going to get a Savage High Country 300 Win Mag rifle and a full package of Vortex Optics, uh, including a rifle scope, binoculars, spotting scope, tripod kit, and a rangefinder. And that fundraiser ends tonight, Wednesday, April 5th at midnight. So if you haven't got your chances yet, go ahead and hit the pause button on this episode and head over to DeerAssociation.com slash tag before it's too late. Also, another exciting announcement here, the NDA is actually hiring. So if you've always dreamed of working in the field of wildlife conservation, we have a couple of regional director positions open right now, uh, one covering the Midwest and a second covering the Southeast. Uh, Both of those are remote positions that work from home. Those employees will work closely with our volunteer-led branches to plan and implement successful fundraising and mission-related events that help drive the mission of the National Deer Association. So if that sounds like something you're interested in or something you'd like to learn more about, 
You can head over to our website at DeerAssociation.com. Uh, click on the About Us part of our menu and look for the employment link. Or you can just go straight to it at DeerAssociation.com slash employment to learn more about those uh, regional director positions. And one more thing before we jump on the phone with Mark. Uh, first, I want to give a big thanks to everybody who's left us a rating or review, uh, particularly on Apple Podcasts. Uh, but there's other podcast platforms that have that as well. Uh, but those rating and reviews help us uh, help more people find our podcast and get plugged in. And so what I wanted to start doing is just occasionally reading some of these reviews that you guys leave us. And hopefully that'll that'll prompt some of you out there who maybe haven't taken the time to do that yet to hit that five star review and, and leave us or hit that five star rating and leave us a, a written review and we'll try to read those on a, a future episode. So this week, I want to just quickly read a couple that have been uh, left here in the past month or so. Uh, the first one is from B-Dub Wooly. B-Dub Wooly uh, says, I love this podcast. Uh, didn't think I'd ever get into podcasts, but Deer Season 365 has been phenomenal to listen to and get the brain juices flowing on how to best understand and find a wall hanger. Thank you so much. So a big thanks to B-Dub Wooly out there uh, for leaving that review for us. Uh, we also had another one come in from Farley F. Farley F said, great podcast. Keep up the good work. Found out about you guys in some footnotes of the NRU episode. I assume he's referring to the Natural Resource University podcast. Uh, he said, this particular episode is so spot on with its content living up to the title of the podcast. I never tire learning about ways to improve my little 60 acres. And you guys are a very important source for improving habitat. Keep up the good work. So again, thank you Farley F for the, uh, the kind review there. And again, guys, if you haven't taken time, please take a moment just to hit that five-star rating and leave us a written review. Let us know what you think of the podcast or maybe uh, what kind of topic you'd like to hear us cover or a certain person you'd like us to have on the podcast, any of that kind of things. Hey, you can leave it right there in the review and uh, we'll be sure to read those and uh, maybe read them on a, an upcoming episode of the show. But with that, guys, we're going to jump on the phone now with Mark Turner to talk all things food plot preparation. Well, hey, Mark, welcome back to the uh, Deer Season 365 podcast. I Appreciate you once again carving some time out to come on here and talk food plots with us. Uh, that's that's always a kind of a listener favorite topic and and one I like to to discuss as well. So I think think this will be a good one. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Brian, for having me on, and uh, really excited. It uh, obviously is a timely timely episode with food plot planting season for grown or for warm season plots coming up. So really excited to chat about things and hopefully share some information that uh, listeners can use. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as I mentioned, you've been on the show before, so I'm, I won't make you, uh, you know, rehash your, your background on this one. Um, for the folks that want to learn a little bit more about Mark and, and what you do there at the uh, University of Tennessee, they can check out episode four. That's where uh, we discuss some of Mark's food plot research and, and some, some common food plot myths. But this one, we're going to uh, kind of go back to the basics and just cover kind of all things food plots as far as the the preparation side of it. And, you know, while I think every good food plot starts with a, a soil test, and, and we'll definitely talk more about that here in a minute, but I actually 
Uh, to get started, I want to kind of back up even a little further than that and talk about site selection, because I, I think in, in a lot of cases, you know, would-be food plotters set themselves up for failure by trying to plant in an area that, that just isn't suited for planting to begin with. And so if you would just kind of kick things off, can you talk a little bit about that and, and maybe, you know, some of the factors you should consider when you decide, you know, where to plant food plots or whether or not, you know, maybe you only have this opening, but is it even suitable for a food plot? Right. So to me, there's kind of two different factors that I want to consider whenever I'm putting a food plot in um, and, and selecting where I'll plant it, et cetera, and, and even what I'm going to plant in that plot. Um, the first is, of course, you know, what are your goals wildlife wise and, and particularly here deer wise? And what are you trying to do with that plot? So if we're trying to, you know, for example, like a lot of folks, especially with growing season plots, you know, increase forage availability for deer during the time when bucks are growing antlers and does are lactating. Um, certainly you should try to pick the spot that's going to be, you know, the best suited for growing a crop and, and potentially large enough um, with consideration to the amount of browse pressure that you're expecting on that plot. You know, for, for a soybean food plot, for example, if you've only got a one acre opening, um, you're either going to need to fence it or not plant soybeans there in most instances, because that's going to get hammered within the first couple of weeks and you're not going to have anything growing there um, during the time when deer need it most. And so that's kind of the first first level of thinking is just from like a general, you know, deer forage availability standpoint, um, as well as what you're trying to do with the plot. That's kind of the, the first level of thinking. And then the second thing I consider is, you know, is this plot at least partially going to be hunted? And for the vast majority of people, and I would, I would make, <laughs> make to guess the vast majority of listeners, hunting is something that they're very interested in doing on their food plots. And if you have a plot in a situation where you're going to plan on hunting it or it's important to your hunting, you, of course, need to think about things like access and wind direction and how exactly you're going to get in and hunt that plot. So, for example, you know, one thing that that I've started thinking about is, you know, predominant wind directions during the time that a plot might be um, attractive for deer. So, for example, you know, we've got on our property some warm season food plots and I tend to put those more on the north end of the property because typically during the early season, during bow season, we get southerly winds. And that's something I think a lot of people don't consider is, you know, laying out your food plots and planting things in a way that are going to make sense for a hunting perspective. And of course, in that instance, we're putting it where the predominant wind direction is blowing off the property away from where we expect deer to be going. Now, of course, that's not always possible depending on the situation. But I think I think kind of breaking down into Number one, you know, what's going to be good in terms of a site that's going to grow plants that are attractive for deer? And then number two, how is that going to affect my hunting? Th those two things are kind of the two big picture things that I want to consider whenever I'm uh, selecting a site for a food plot. And of course, we can get more in the weeds on that if you want to in terms of, you know, exact considerations, especially with regards to what I'm thinking about for, you know, sites that will grow plants well. Right. Yeah. And that, that's a good point about size that I hadn't really... What wasn't on my radar, but I, I have been down that road, you know, where I've I've planted a small, you know, half acre plot in cow peas and, you know, they start sprouting up and you, you get all excited. And then the next thing you know, you go out there to check on them and, and you just have a big dirt patch again because the deer just absolutely hammered them down to the dirt. 
And uh, yep, so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, you never definitely. want to plant some. You never want to plant something like uh, that's really attractive, like cowpeas and or, or soybeans in a plot that's you know generally less than several acres, honestly, unless you're in an extremely low density environment. So, you know that that to me is like the first glaring thing is you know is this plot going to be big enough to support um, the number of mouths I have on the property? Because if it's not, it's going to be a failure regardless of what you do in terms of soil amendment or um, you know, the seed that you get or, or whatever else, you know, it's, it's a complete waste of effort and you need to consider either planting something different or making the plot bigger. Yep. And, and that, that brings up a, a side note. I don't want to, I don't want to get too far off track, but man, that's why it is so important too. I think to, to throw out an exclusion cage uh, on a food plot because, and that's simply, you know, for those that might not be familiar with that term, it, it's just a, a, a wire cage that you put out there uh, uh, that's circular it it protects a small area of the food plot and really that's the only way you can know um, how much deer pre- how much browsing pressure is being put on that plot because like I said when I went out there and checked my cowpea plot and it's it's eight down to the dirt well you know if if I hadn't been watching that I might come out there and think well the seed never germinated or just it was a complete failure but with that browse exposure on there, you can see, you know, you might have a nice big patch of cowpeas inside the cage and then everything else is just dirt. And that's going to give you a, a good idea of, of what happened there, whether the food plot was a failure or it came up, but the deer have just ate it back down to the ground. So just a, a little side note there while we were talking. Oh, about yeah, that. absolutely. And again, not to get us too far off in the weeds, but if you're going to do an exclusion cage, which you absolutely should. Um, it's really important to do it correctly. I, I can't tell you, you know, with my research, we travel around a, a good bit to a lot of different properties across the country. And I can't tell you the number of sites that we go to that have that first off, either don't put out exclusion cages in their plots um, or they put out cages that are too small and the deer end up eating inside the cage <laughs> or they put in they put in cages that have big you know, cattle panel where the deer can stick its head halfway across the cage. Um, or they put the cage on the corner of the plot where they don't want to have to move it because of spraying and it's no. close to the woods. So if you're doing a, if you're going to put cages out, which you definitely should, you know, make them at least like a yard in diameter, make them pretty big, put them out in the middle of the plot, make sure that you move the cage each time that you, you know, either spray herbicide or mow or, you know, whatever management you're doing, don't just leave the cage in that one spot because then it's not representative of the rest of the field. Um, and, and try to use something that's, you know, a little bit smaller panel size than, than cattle panel. Just, just a couple, you know, brief things on that topic. Yeah. Yep. That's good stuff. Good advice. But, uh, you know, back, back to kind of the big picture stuff. Um, if that's, if that's where you want to go with this. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So kind of assuming the plot's big enough and it's in a spot that makes sense for hunting. The first thing I'm thinking about is, is there enough sunlight hitting the soil to where I can grow the type of species that I'm interested in growing. There's some workarounds to this and I'll, I'll kind of get into those, but you know, if there's not, it, it doesn't matter how good the soil is. If there's not sunlight hitting the ground, then you're not going to be able to grow plants. And that, you know, the, the plants that you're growing for deer, there are some that are more, for, more shade tolerant than others, but really you need, I mean, you need at least, let's just say five hours of sunlight a day to be able to grow you know, even the most shade tolerant plants, um, at least, you know, to the levels at which you're, it's going to be worth your while in doing. 
So, you know, if you're in an open field, that's not an issue. But, you know, thinking about a lot of the small little hunting plots, um, which can be really great spots to hunt, but man, they can be, it, it can be a, it can be a, uh, a problem trying to get enough shade on or uh, shade off of that plot to where sufficient sunlight's hitting the ground. Um, and that's where, you know, you can go in and, and girdle and kill trees around the plot or fell them or get a dozer in there to knock them down. You know, whatever your your ability to manage around the plot is, um, definitely thinking about if it has enough sunlight is a huge issue because that the number of plots that that don't have sufficient sunlight and you're just sitting there wasting money, essentially trying to grow something where it's not going to grow. Um, it, it really is astounding how many how many situations you end up in like that. And um, and really, again, all you have to do is go girdle some trees around the edge of the plot particularly along the side, you know, depending on the slope and things like that, this is something you'll have to look at. But, um, you know, particularly on the, on the side that tends to get, tends to be blocking the sun most often during the fall and winter, assuming this is a, you know, a cool season plot that that's really, really the critical thing because the sun is so low in the horizon relatively during the fall and winter, you really need to knock down those trees that are, you know, blocking more of the sun. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was definitely, uh, you, you read right off my notes. That, that was kind of where I wanted to head with this as far as the sunlight, because I know, you know, there's a lot of guys out there that are hunting tracks with limited openings. And, uh, in some cases, you know, it might be, uh, timber company leases where they really can't get out there and, and cut, you know, cut much in the way of trees, but they're, they're trying to plant, old logging rows or they're they're trying to plant between those rows of thin pines and uh yeah like you said sometimes it's it's a losing battle but i I guess it's just a matter like you said making sure you're getting at least some some uh time of of sunlight in there on it on a daily basis yeah and and one thing i will say um if you're if you have the ability to you know all things being equal you know, if, if you're in a situation where you're planting like a long linear strip and you can't cut trees around the edge of the plot, planting north and south in general tends to work better than trying to plant a plot oriented more east west. You know, you would think being east and west, you would get the sun all day on the plot because obviously the sun rises in the east, sets in the west. Um, and I've actually had to deal with this on property that um, where we created a plot and just we, we just happen to orient it east-west. What ends up happening is during the, uh, the fall and winter, you know, the sun tends to stay relatively low in the horizon and um, you don't get near enough sunlight, especially from like November, December, January, February um, on the, it, uh, you know, if you have a lot of trees and you just have a little thin opening, you're going to get less sunlight during the fall and winter on that, you know, kind of, east-west oriented plot compared to the north-south because at least at some point on a north-south opening you're going to have full sun when the sun kind of you know gets to that middle of the day point where it's shooting right down the opening yeah yeah so that's just kind of a little thing that i've noticed yeah yeah that's that's a good tip yep during that fall and winter uh sun's gonna that though i guess those those trees on the south side of the plot if you got east-west plot are gonna gonna block that sun all day long so especially if it's you know like you said you're planting a narrow narrow situation where it's a you know rows between pines or whatever the case may be so yep that's yeah. that's good 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, don't overlook if you're in a situation where you can cut trees, definitely don't overlook going in and killing some, you know, you don't have to fell them necessarily. You can just girdle and spray them or hack and squirt them or, you know, however you want to kill them. I mean, we've taken, we've got a few little plots, um, you know, on various properties where we've gone in and created like, we had like an old logging deck or something like that, gone in and created a little, you know, 10th or 20th acre opening. And, you know, we'll harvest several deer off of those each year. And all we've done is just gone in and opened up that existing opening by girdling trees. And, you know, we just have a bunch of dead trees around the edge of the plot, but it's a big enough opening now that we can grow, you know, pretty much whatever we want to in it, you know, assuming deer pressure doesn't overwhelm it. Yeah. I guess, again, without getting too far off track, because I don't want to get too far in the weeds on food plot species selection, because that's, that's, again, a whole topic for a whole other podcast episode. But I guess just a few, if somebody is dealing with a, a mostly shady site or limited sunlight on a site, uh, any, any certain species that may do better than others in that situation. Yep. So for warm season plots, joint vetch is really your only option that I, you know, would recommend in a situation where you're shaded because, I mean, let's just be realistic. If you're shaded, it's because it's a small plot. And so joint vetch is really the only warm season species that I would recommend in a situation like that. For cool season plantings, you can get away with you can get away with most of the clovers are relatively shade tolerant. Um, so even just a you know simple mix of like uh, wheat and and um, and crimson clover, or uh, or even trying to do ladino clover. Most of the clovers are relatively shade tolerant compared to other species. Um, I would not go with a brassica blend in a situation that's shade tolerant. They're not, or that is shaded. They're not nearly as shade tolerant as a lot of the other species. Um, you know, the other thing to consider too, with regards to, you know, shade is you can get away with a little bit more shade in a hardwood setting, but just recognize that you're going to have to blow those leaves off the plot because, um, which may seem a little ridiculous, but you can't. You know, if you have a bunch of leaves fall onto the plot because it's on the edge of the woods or shaded situation, you're going to have to clear it off during the middle of the season, which isn't an issue. It doesn't take long and, you know, you just do it once and you're done. But that's something to consider. Yeah, I guess one one other thing, um, or at least in, in my mind, you might have more. But as far as site selection, the other thing that that came to my mind, of course, was uh, drainage. Um, what? Yes. What kind of what kind of. What do you need to be looking for there? And um, I guess, you know, in a situation where it's poor drainage, is is there anything you could still plant or is it worth planting? What 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 do you need to be factoring in, I guess, as far as drainage? Yeah. So the big thing to me, I mean, of course, you know, some spots that are on ridge tops and things like that may tend to be a little bit drier, but I'm not necessarily as worried about that because at the end of the day, you know, if you're not getting enough rainfall to sustain a food plot. I mean, the difference between a ridge top and a, and a bottom, you know, is in, in most instances, isn't something I'm concerned with as much, but what I do get concerned with is whenever we have standing water or a situation that, you know, you're dealing with, with spots that are not draining well. And so typically what I'm looking for there is of course, if, if there's standing water, then I'm obviously going to be, you know, kind of raising my eyebrows a little bit, but also, you know, one of the things that is really a, a takeaway, and this requires a little bit of plant plant ID skills, but or a giveaway, I should say, 
is if you've got a bunch of like sedges and rushes, um, those are those, you know, they kind of look like grasses, but they, they're, you know, they, they're more uh, wetland species. They're, they're not grasses. You know, sedges are, um, have, have round leaves, whereas grasses have blades. Um, and then, or excuse me, rushes have round leaves and uh, sedges have kind of triangular shaped leaves. Um, if you've got a bunch of sedges and rushes in a spot, most of the time at some point during the year, you're going to have some bad drainage issues. And so that's a situation where you can try it just depending on the severity of the drainage issue. Um, if you do try to plant there, I probably would focus on clovers and, uh, and cereal grains do okay with, with, with drainage issues as well. But I, I think clovers are really your best bet because they, and especially there's several species that are more, tend to be more, you know, bottomland type clover species. Um, crimson doesn't do quite as well in bottomland situations. Balanza tends to do a little bit better. Um, so that's maybe one I would consider, but, uh, yeah, just, just thinking about your species a little bit and, and trying to pick the best site. I mean, you know, I totally understand that a lot of us are relegated to planting food plots and spots that are not exactly ideal because you can't grow trees or you can't grow crops there, but, you know, trying to do your best to pick a site that, you know, doesn't have standing water, um, has sufficient sunlight. Um, that's, that's really, really the the big things that I try to think of. Cause yeah, drainage can be a major issue if you don't consider it ahead of time. Right. Well, let's, let's assume we've, we've picked our food plot locations. You know, we, we have adequate drainage and, and good sunlight. Uh, kind of what's our, our next step in the process to uh, ensuring we get, we get a good food plot. Yeah. So the next step for sure is soil testing. And, and when I think about, you know, and there's a reason why I didn't mention soul with regards to site selection. You know, of course, there's something to be said about looking at your soul map and finding the most productive location on a property. And I mean, I think in an ideal setting, that would be great to do. Um, but with rea- with reality, you know, I tend to think more about where a plot makes sense and with regards to hunting setup. And as long as I have sufficient sunlight and sufficient uh, drainage, Assuming that, you know, there wasn't something weird done, like the topsoil was all removed to make a road cut or something, you know, something like that, you can pretty well amend the soil to grow what you want. You may have to, you know, tinker with your species selection for the first few years, and it may take a little while for those soil amendments to take place. But, you know, there's plenty of instances where, you know, landowners have gone in and cleared a a pine forest and or a hardwood forest, it doesn't really matter, and turned it into a very productive food plot within just a few years of, of that happening. Um, and in fact, sometimes within that first year. So it, I, I really don't stress too much over the soil until it comes time to planting. Um, I, I just want to make that, that distinction clear as to why that didn't really factor in with the site selection as much. Um, I mean, if you have two sites and one has better soil, well, of course, I'm going to pick the better one. But the reality is that usually isn't the case. So soil testing really doesn't come in until I pick the site. I know I've got good, good sunlight on the ground. I've got, you know, good drainage. It makes sense for my hunting setup. At that point, as soon as I've decided on a spot, I'm going to go ahead and pull soil tests and send them off to the lab because, you know, typically most labs, uh, most states have, have a, you know, soil testing lab that you can send to. There are also several commercial labs. 
Um, depending on the state, it, it may take up to a few weeks to get your results back. So as soon as you can get those results or get those samples out to the lab, you know, the quicker you can get results and the quicker you can apply some of these amendments, uh, because especially Lyme takes several months, if not a, a full year to work itself into the soil and really have the effect on pH that we would like. So, you know, once I've decided on a spot, that's when I go out there and pull my soil test and, and start getting, getting things ready to go. And as far as the actual sampling process, I mean, we just go out in the middle of the food plot and, and pull a representative sample, or do we need to pull soil from multiple locations in the plot? What What's the best practice there? Yeah, so you definitely don't want to just pull soil from one spot. And, um, you know, because who knows, there could have been a, you know, an animal that died or defecated there. And you end up getting a spot that's really high in nutrients, whereas the rest of the, the plot is low. Um, so, so you definitely want to pull a representative sample. I think just as a general rule of thumb, you know, I don't, I don't like to send off a soil test without pulling more than less than, uh, let's just say, 10 uh, samples per, per food plot. Um, you know, with bigger plots, I might send more. With smaller plots, maybe maybe I only sent maybe I only pull seven or eight. But you just want to have a relatively you know evenly distributed, somewhat random pattern. And um, as you're going out and pulling your samples, and just to make sure that you get a good representative you know coverage of the plot, because if there are little differences, you want to make sure that you know you kind of average out for those and don't end up with one sample that just throws off your whole whole test. So yeah, um, one thing that's that's big with soil sampling is, you know, you don't want to include any live material. So you want to make sure that you remove, you know, any grass or, or weed material or roots that may be in that sample. And you also don't want to send off wet soil to the lab. So make sure, you know, you pull your sample, you mix it all up in a bucket, and then you, um, out of that, get the amount of soil that you need to actually send to the lab. And at that point, you know, it doesn't really matter how you do it. If you want to leave it in the bucket, put it in the in the bag that you're going to send it off. But make sure that you let it dry for, you know, at least a couple of days because you don't want to send wet soil off that may mold on the way to the lab and then they can't process it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, one thing, it's been several years back, but me and Lindsay Thomas went to uh, the University of Georgia, actually, where they run those soil samples and they just showed us the process. But uh just a, a couple things I learned from that is, is one, make sure you're sending enough soil, you know, fill those those bags that they give you, at least here, you know, have like a fill mark on it. So you want to make sure that you fill up to the line and uh, yeah, sift out all the, uh, you know, sticks or rocks and all that kind of stuff in there. Because they, they were saying that was one of the biggest things is um, people don't send in enough soil or by the time they they sift out all the, you know, the, the garbage. Uh, there's not enough soil there to get a, a good test. So just a couple couple tips there on that end. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a that's a really good point for sure because if you if you go to the time to do it, it's just like exclusion cages. You know, if you're gonna go to the time to take a soil sample or put out a cage or um plant a food plot in general, you might as well do it right or, you know, at least as as absolutely best as you can because you know, those little things can really, really hurt you if you if you don't get a result that's that's actually accurate for your plot, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And hey, I mean, you know, the food plot process when done correctly is, is not a cheap process. So, 
you know, if you're going to go through all the trouble, the time and the effort and spending the money on the, the seed and the fertilizer and lime and all that, yeah, like you said, you might as well do it right the first time and uh, to get to get the best results possible. So. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk about amendments next? Yeah, I was I was just uh, the next, I was just going to ask kind of what information that soil test is going to tell you. You know, when you get those results back, what what are you going to gather from that? You know, what what's that? What are those soil tests going to tell you uh, as far as what you what you need to do from that that point on? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when you get your results back, there's a few things that I like looking at. Um, of course, there's a lot of information. It's easy to look at it and, you know, have an information overload. Um, but really there's, you know, probably four or five different things on that soil test that I'm going to look at that are going to tell me what I need to do. Uh, the first one is pH. So soil pH is absolutely the, you know, if there's, if there's nothing else that you do with a food plot, but amend the soil to where the pH is within the appropriate range, you know, generally between a six and a seven for most species, you're, you're going to have pretty decent plots or at least, you know, you're, you're going to be doing, doing a pretty good job if you, if you can and deal with, you know, deal with the pH issue in your plots, because the vast majority of plots, especially in the South, you're going to have a pH. Um, if you, if it's never been planted, you're probably going to have a pH somewhere in the five range, um, sometimes lower, sometimes a little higher, but so, so looking at the pH and then seeing um, from there the amount of lime that's called for. Uh, lime is the, you know, there's several different types of lime. And we can talk about that here in a second. But, um, you know, lime is the way that we change the soil pH to raise it. There on some sites, um, I know we're not just talking to people in the south and some sites in the Midwest and especially further north um, from there. Um, drainage can be an issue in plots and in soil to where you end up with high pH. Um, unfortunately, amendment options for higher pH are much more limited. I'm not quite as familiar with, with exactly, you know, the, the routes to go for that. And this is, you know, probably only a few listeners will be in this situation. But um, generally, when you have high pH in, in situations like that and the soils they have in the, you know, kind of north central U.S., a lot of the time it's, it's tied to drainage issues. And that's, that's something, you know, to think about addressing with, with site selection and things like that. But for the vast majority of people that are listening, you're probably going to have a relatively low pH and that's something you need to address. From there, I'm looking at my macronutrient levels in the soil and whether they are low, medium, or high. Most, most states will give you some, some ranking of, of your macronutrients and of course, nitrogen is the first macronutrient many people think of, but most soil tests actually don't test for nitrogen. Typically, they are basically, because nitrogen is so so volatile and is used up so quickly, um, most nitrogen recommendations are actually coming from crop use data. So, you know, for example, they're making some assumption that um, a wheat plot is going to use 100 pounds of nitrogen per acre, but I'm just throwing numbers out here, but they're making an assumption about that and then telling you to then apply about hundred pounds of nitrogen per acre. Um, so most of that's based on use data. Um, the ones that are actually tested for would be phosphorus and potassium. That's your P and your K. Those two are very important for plant growth. And those two are tested within the soil. And then 
they give you a recommendation for the pounds per acre of phosphorus and potassium, which potassium is um, applied as potash. So, you know, don't get don't get confused if it if it shows potash or 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 potassium, you know, either which way a fertilizer that has, you know, phosphorus and or potassium are going to help help meet those respective needs. I also take a second to glance at the micronutrients. These are things like sulfur and zinc and boron. For most food plot species, you're not going to have limited, you're not going to need to apply or amend the soil for those micronutrients. Uh, The one exception would be alfalfa. Uh, A lot of the time, alfalfa tends to need to be fertilized with one or more micronutrients. It's just a very demanding crop. But other than that, your micros are probably going to be good on most sites. So I'm really looking at, again, the pH, the um, macronutrients and those recommendations associated with that. And then if I want to dig a little deeper, I'll also glance at the CEC, which is the cation exchange capacity, as well as the states call it different things. It might be called humic matter or organic matter in the soil. I'll glance at those two things, The, the CEC or cation exchange capacity is related to several things, including pH, as well as organic matter in the soil. And that essentially just tells you how well the soil can hold nutrients. Um, So you want a higher, basically a higher CEC or cation exchange capacity is going to uh, mean that the soil can hold nutrients better. And that just tells you a little bit about, you know, the nutrient holding ability of the plot. And, you know, if if that's something that's important to you, it, it may be interesting to look at. And then the other thing, organic matter or humic matter, depending on what the lab actually calls it, is uh, basically testing for the amount of, you know, organic or the percentage of the, of the soil that you sent off that is made up by, you know, organic matter, which is, you know, basically broken down plant parts um, and, and other, you know, other bits that, you know, roots and things like that. So uh, those two things, uh, organic matter helps with water retention as well as the amount, the ability of the soil to hold nutrients. So those two things are important. Um, I'm not necessarily looking at applying things to change them um, with the exception of cation exchange capacity is changed whenever you raise the soil pH. So that's a good thing. Um, but just if you want to dig deeper on soil test and, and, and if you think, well, this plot's not growing well, even though I've amended the soil correctly, you know, maybe there's something going on there with with either CEC or organic matter, but really big things to look at are, you know, those macronutrients as well as the uh, amendment recommendations. Yeah. You mentioned that CEC is related to pH. Is that why, you know, I often hear people say that, you know, if you're, if your pH is poor, that applying fertilizer is that you're just wasting your money on the fertilizer. Is that, is that kind of is that where that comes from, or is that a is that a true statement? I mean, if your pH, if you're not addressing your a pH, a low pH, am I wasting money by just applying fertilizer and not not lime? That that is a true statement. It's partially attributed to the fact that the ability of the soil to hold those nutrients is is increased whenever you apply lime. But there's there's more than just that going on. There's also the fact that at low pH as well as at high pH some nutrients are actually bound up. Like basically there's interactions occurring between nutrients to where the plants are not having access to those nutrients. So either, you know, either they're not being held in the soil 
or they're bound up with each other to where they're not accessible to the plants. But yeah, absolutely. Um, nutrient availability is much less if you have a low pH compared to if you you know apply the correct lime and amend the soil to where you have sufficient pH. Yeah. So so don't <laughs> don't skip the lime and and just go out yep. there and and spread the fertilizer because um, you're not you're yeah, not going to get the benefits. So. Gotcha. Yeah. And I, I think there's something to be said about, you know, types of lime, because this is something that I think a lot has been written about and said about. But there's still tons of confusion about liming material and how it works. So, you know, unlike most of the other nutrients that we're applying, such as nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium, um, assuming it's incorporated into the soil when you apply it, most of those nutrients are readily available. So they're, you know, almost immediately available to the plant compared to lime, which lime is actually not, you know, you're not trying to make something available to the plant. You're simply freeing up, you know, basically storage space for those nutrients within the soil by raising the pH. And so you're actually having to change something within the soil and that takes a little bit longer. And so there's been a lot of different people, you know, approaches and thoughts about how we can change how long it takes, because of course it takes a long time to, you know, generally you're talking at least six months is, is how long in advance we would recommend liming a plot. Now, if you can't lime something six months in advance and you're going out there to plant it the same day that you lime it, still lime it because you're going to gain benefit because the soil pH will, you know, tend to increase throughout the growing season with that lime application. But, you know, big picture wise, the earlier you can apply the lime, the better. So one thing that people have have done is try to develop products that allow lime, you know, basically fast acting lime or, you know, however it's been termed or sold as. And there's also discussion about whether you need to apply as much of those fast acting products as you would regular lime. For example, you know, the most common one most people think about is pelletized lime. Uh, pelletized lime is great because for a lot of landowners that either don't have access to an actual lime spreader um, or they can't hire their co-op to come out and spread lime because they only have a quarter acre plot. Um, pelletized lime allows them to be able to spread the lime with a typical fertilizer spreader or over-the-shoulder bag spreader. Whereas lime is lime is typically sold as you know bulk lime or or ag lime as it's often called is a really fine powder and it has to have a specialized spreader to be able to to apply it. Um, if you're in a, in a situation where you can't either get access to the spreader or hire someone to come out and spread it, then absolutely pellet lime is, is a great option. Um, however, don't be fooled into thinking just because your fertilizer salesman told you that you only need a couple hundred pounds per acre, that that's actually the case. It, so that, that kind of myth started because pelletized lime used to be a byproduct of liming products that were too fine to be put into typical ag powdered lime. Um, so they, they took this byproduct, which was finer, which meant it was faster acting, and they bound it up into these little pellets and sold it as a byproduct. Pretty quickly, you know, some smart people realized that a lot of people were interested in this, and they stopped just including the byproduct material and started basically just taking ag lime and put making it, turning it into a pellet. Now, the myth still remains that it doesn't take nearly as much ag lime, or excuse me, pellet lime as ag lime, but that's not the case anymore. Um, if you look at a bag of lime, and if you're if you're curious about this, there's a you know basically a calcium carbonate equivalent 
that is required by states to be on that bag of uh, liming material. And that will show you exactly how much basically liming material is in the product that you're buying. So if you're buying something that's pelletized, it'll show you that essentially a ton of pellet lime is equal to a ton of bulk ag lime or relatively close to that. Maybe it's 1800 pounds of pellet lime is equal to a ton of ag lime. But at the end of the day, you know, take those liming um, recommendations from the soil test and regardless of whether you use pellet or bulk, apply that amount that it recommends. Don't, you know, don't try to be caught up in thinking that because you're applying pellet lime, you can apply less because in reality, the product is the same or relatively close to the same. Um, it's not, it's not, you know, much better. It's just a lot more expensive compared to if you buy bulk lime and, and get it spread by, you know, your local co-op, which is definitely the way I would go if you've got enough acreage to make that work. Okay. What about these? I see a lot of questions around um, these these liquid liquid lime or whatever that that's being marketed now to lower your pH and of the soil and to you know work a lot faster. Have you any comments on that, or have you t- tested that? Or yeah, so I haven't I haven't personally tested it, but I know some people that have, and just general recommendations the. Because it is in a liquid form and, and, and agricultural producers do use some of these products from time to time, you know, because it's in a liquid form, you do, the material is so much finer, you do get a little bit quicker response. But the thing to remember is if you get a quicker response, you're also going to see a quicker, you know, decrease back to normal pH levels. So with these products, you know, perhaps you could use it as, as a little supplement early on. If you say apply pelletized or ag lime in a food plot, but you, you know, the soil pH is low and you want to get it, get it bumped up ahead of this season. Um, maybe that's an instance where you could apply it. But I think if you do the math on these products and consider the fact that you're, you're probably going to have to apply it annually, whereas normal lime would only be every two to three years, approximately, I think I think the cost benefit really starts to become a question. And that's, you know, it, it may be great for doing within this planting season, seeing a short little bump in pH. But um, the fact that you're going to have to apply it, you know, once a year or perhaps even twice a year if you're double cropping that field, um, I think it starts to kind of lose some of the benefit. So I'm not saying I would necessarily avoid those, but definitely don't fall into the trap of believing those are sufficient for you know, actually managing the the pH in your plots. You're way better off applying either pellet or powdered lime to those fields instead of, you know, just continually relying on buying this liquid product because they are relatively expensive. Okay. Yep. It, it, you made me think of another question there. I meant to ask earlier when you mentioned uh, about, you know, applying lime every two to three years. How often do I need to retest my soil? Um, once I've established a food plot, you know, I did my initial testing, maybe apply my initial amendments. How often do I need to be retesting that soil? I think every two years is a is a good time frame to look at. You know, I, I think three is the longest that I would go. But I, I think every other year is a good, good kind of starting point. However, I do think that, you know, testing annually, there are some benefits. And in some states, I know North Carolina in particular, you can actually send your soil off to the lab for free. There's a there's a tax that's imposed on uh, 
on some some farming products that basically pay for soil testing during the majority of the year. So you, uh, it really doesn't cost you anything to send soil samples off every year. Now I know that's not the case in every state, um, but you know, look at the cost and and see you know see what the cost is. But I, I don't think there's a negative to soil testing more often than not. But I, I think every two years is probably the furthest I would go. Yeah. Yeah, I think last one I did here in Georgia was like nine bucks. So I mean, it's not it's not an expensive process, regardless of of where you're at. Um, so yeah, definitely worth. Again, you're you're already spending a good bit of money on seed and and fertilizer and lime and all this other stuff. A, a soil test is pretty pretty insignificant in the whole the whole cost analysis of the the thing. So yeah, one one other quick thing. I'm glad you brought soil test back up. I completely forgot to mention this. It is critically important that you list the species that you're planting whenever you go send off a soil test. That that cannot be uh, cannot be overstated because, of course, the soil test results themselves will not change, but the actual recommendations will change. And it's important that you get recommendations for the actual species that you're planting, and not just some you know broad spectrum recommendation. Right. So, for example, I, I mentioned before that the uh, the nitrogen results were based on, you know, average yield data and things like that from the state that they have. You definitely want to say if you're planting corn, for example, you want to, you know, get their input on how much nitrogen you should apply. Same with uh, brassicas or, or wheat or, you know, any other species that you're looking at. It's worthwhile there. But, uh, but even more so, the phosphorus and potassium results, as well as the pH uh, results, are all tied back to that species you're planting and what it needs. Um, now, you're probably not going to have, for a state agency, some, you know, well, and in some cases you do, and I may, I may or may not recommend using them. You know, they may, they may have some food plot, you know, food plot blend as, as one of their little um, options that you can choose whenever you have your crop code that you're entering. I would tend to select more just based on the predominant species in the field or something relatively close. Uh, for example, if I'm planting cowpeas in a plot, I'm not going to check the box for wildlife food plot. I'm going to check the box for soybeans and I'm in the field as if I was planting soybeans because that's a relatively similar crop. Um, same with if I'm planting clovers, I'm going to try to find uh, something that's relatively comparable versus just getting some recommendation for, you know, goodness knows what the state considers with their soul lab, a wildlife food plot blend or something like that. So, you know, regardless, long story short, just look at the crop codes and, and choose the one that's closest to the species you're looking to plant. Yeah. Yeah. I know one of the last ones I did, it was a, uh, I was planting a, a wheat um, crimson clover mix and they actually sent me two separate results or two second two separate sheets with recommendations, one specifically for the wheat and one specifically for the crimson clover. And then, you know, I just adjusted, adjusted what I actually applied kind of based on, on the the two of them, you know, kind of melding them together. But I, I don't know if that's typical that they do that. But in that case, in my case, they sent me a recommendations of, of each species in, in the mix I was sowing. So. Yeah, absolutely. That's just something to consider. Definitely. If you're going to spend the money, you might as well tell them what you're planting so you get good results. Right. Yep. And then, okay, we've we've sent off our soil tests. We've we've got our recommendations. I guess the how do we actually apply the the lime and fertilizer as far as um, timing? And, and you've touched on that some with the lime, but 
as far as timing of, of doing that. And can we just go out there and broadcast this on, on top of the ground before we plan or do we need, does it need to be incorporated into the soil? What, what's the actual application process for these amendments? Yeah. So um, with regards to lime, um, I typically like to see it incorporated into the soil. You're just going to get better results doing it that way. Um, but yeah, you can, you know, you don't necessarily have to disc before you apply. You could, you could go out and apply those amendments and then disc potassium or, or potash as well as nitrogen. I'm not as concerned with incorporating those because they are relatively salt, relatively, you know, soluble nutrients that'll move through the uh, soil profile. Phosphorus though I, is pretty close to lime. Phosphorus takes a long time to move through the soil profile. Um, so if I'm applying phosphorus, I'm definitely going to apply it with the lime or, you know, you can apply it at planting too. It doesn't have to be a long ways ahead of time, but you definitely need to actually, um, you know, disc and distribute that into the soil for best results. Of course, if you're in a no-till situation, that's not possible. And if that's the case, that's totally okay. Um, but if you're going to be disking anyway, I definitely would apply the nutrients and then disc and then, you know, go through the planting process from there. You're always going to be better off with with it mixed into the soil, but particularly with with potash and nitrogen, you can get away with just top sowing it. Okay. And then should should we be looking for a as particularly, I guess, with with uh, the fertilizer, should I be looking for a, a rain event, you know, right after I apply this or or is that does it matter either way as far as that goes? That that doesn't really it's not a huge deal. You know, of course, to actually, especially if you top sow it, to actually get, you know, mixed into the soil, uh, into the soil, you're going to have to have a rain event. But I, I'm not necessarily concerned with the fertilizer being incorporated so much as, you know, the seed actually getting getting sufficient moisture to germinate um, if you're if you're doing it at planting. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I mean, to, to actually get mixed into the soil. Yeah, you need rain. But. I guess that's not something I'm stressed over because if, if you don't have rain, that's, you got bigger issues than, than the fertilizer not being there. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like, you know, it's not like the seed, I guess it's going to potentially lay there and, and rot or, or get eaten by birds. The, the fertilizer can sit there for a while, I guess, before a rain event without, without any issues. So. I, and, and there is one, there is one exception. I guess I, I should, I should back up and restate, um, reword that a little bit. Um, if you're applying a lot of nitrogen products, particularly urea, which is, um, I believe it's 4600. Um, I think that's right. It may be 4800, but I think it's 4600. If you're applying urea as your nitrogen, you, you do need to have rain occurring within about 24 hours of that application. Um, so uh, if you're not going to mix it into the soil. So if you're, if you're incorporating it, then it's not an issue. But if you're not incorporating uh, nitrogen, uh, particularly urea products, they will actually volatize and basically, you know, you lose that nitrogen into the atmosphere uh, starting within about 24 hours of the time of application. So for a lot of folks, this may not be an issue, but if you are, you know, either planting a plot no-till no and need nitrogen and so you just top sow it, or if you're trying to, you know, fertilize, let's just say either a brassica or a corn planting uh, halfway through during the growing season, then yeah, you you need to make sure that you apply that 
with rain in the forecast, because if you if you don't and typically they recommend about a half inch of rain um, occurring within 24 hours of that application. So I should have I should have stated that and it just slipped my mind. So, yeah, if you're not incorporating nitrogen, especially urea, you need to plan on having rain. But other than that, I'm not I'm not as worried about it. Okay, and and you brought up brought up a good point there um, as far as applying fertilizer or nitrogen, you know, during the course of, of this food plot growing, is that, is that standard? I mean, do we, when, when you get those recommendations for the soil test, is that typically just all applied pre-planning or at the time of planning or, or does there need to be some, some fertilizer or yeah, fertilizer treatments during the actual growing season? Yeah. So to me, there's, I think three distinct cases where, fertilization during the growing season may be beneficial. You know, of course you could, you know, I I guess there's probably others that, that some people may think of, but there's three that stand out to me at least. Um, The first one is a perennial clover planting Um, with perennial clover. You're going to want to continue soil testing every two years, even if, you know, you're able to maintain that plot for seven, eight, 10 years, you want to continue soil testing it to make sure that you're, um, keeping those phosphorus and potassium levels as well as the pH in line with what the plant needs. Um, so in those instances, absolutely, you can apply that fertilizer, you know, pr- pretty much any time whenever the plant's actively growing. I wouldn't do it during a drought or something like that. But, you know, you can you can make those applications and get those into the soil whenever they're needed. The second one would be growing a warm season grain, um, especially corn, but also grain sorghum. Those plantings use so much nitrogen, especially corn, that in most instances, you're going to need to top sow some nitrogen at some point during the growing season. You know, ag producers will typically do what's called side dressing. So they'll, they basically are able to, you know, put the nitrogen into the soil with equipment that they have that's specialized. Of course, as food plot producers, most of us don't have that equipment. And so we're not able to do that. But you, you do definitely want to be, you know, applying some nitrogen during the growing season and then, um, you know, at least making at least, let's just say one application during the middle of the growing season to make sure that there's sufficient nitrogen for the whole time uh, during the summer. And then the other one would be with brassicas. You can get some benefit if you fertilize your brassica plantings, let's just say 30 days after, um, after they start growing, you know, not necessarily saying everyone is going to do that or need to do that, but you may, you may see a little bit of extra bump in growth um, if you fertilize those brassicas, you know, let's just say a month to a month and a half after that initial planting. Um, now, with those last two, it's important to note, like I said before, you need to either apply a form of nitrogen that does not volatize. So don't apply urea. Or if you're going to apply urea, make sure that you get a rain event within 24 to at most 48 hours after your application or you're you're simply wasting money. Okay. All right. So at this point, you know, we've picked our location, we've tested the soil, we've, we've added our amendments. What, what's our next steps? How do we go about, I guess, preparing to plant at that point? Yeah. So I think the, the next thing is going to be, you know, thinking about how we're actually going to um, achieve good seed to soil contact and make sure that we, you know, have the, the wheat, the existing weeds on the plot control. And so there's, I think two ways that we can go about weed control with, in my opinion, at least one being the one that I'm going to recommend, you know, 
at least nine times, probably 10 times out of 10, just being realistic. So you can either look at burn down herbicide applications or you can look at, you know, repeated tillage on a site to make sure that you get the the weeds that are existing on the plot right now controlled. Um, but most of the time I'm going to recommend a burn down herbicide application. Um, just going in with something like two quartz break or glyphosate in most instances, you may need to tweak that a little bit if you've got some real problematic species like Bermuda grass or if you're in a situation, you know, down in like the coastal plain and you have yopon and other, you know, really glossy leaved species. Or if you're in a situation where you have some glyphosate resistant weeds. If you're in those latter two situations where you have, you know, either, either you know, b- more brushy species, let's just say, or you have um, glyphosate resistant weeds, adding some 2,4-D to your glyphosate mixture can help with uh, knocking those out. Um, That's just kind of a general rule of thumb. And, you know, there, there of course, are instances where that may or may not work, depending on the exact weed that you're dealing with. If you have something like Bermuda grass or Bahia grass in a plot, during your burn down application, you may need to up that level of glyphosate, you know, for Bermuda grass up to, you know, five quarts per acre, which sounds like a ridiculous amount to apply, but Bermuda is really tough to kill. For Bahia, I probably would bump it up to three quarts per acre. But just as a general rule of thumb, most instances you're going to be okay two quarts per acre of glyphosate, perhaps adding 2,4-D into the mixture um, if you have some particular weeds that are really hard to control. Um, The only thing to think about if you include 2,4-D is make sure that you have um, sufficient time from your spraying application uh, of that burn down herbicide to the time that you're planting. Because with some species like soybeans um, or clovers, that 2,4-D um, has enough soil residual activity to ding those up. Um, so you want to make sure that you apply it with sufficient time. But um, assuming that's not an issue, I personally like applying my burn down application uh, two to three weeks before planting. If you only allow a week, some of those species are not going to be, you know, fully dead. Um, and if you allow, you know, let's just say four weeks, uh, sometimes you're going to see some things start growing again. And, and that's not necessarily desirable either. Okay. But as far as I guess harming the seed, you you can you can spray glyphosate. I mean, right, just immediately prior to planting, correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yep the the I only mentioned the timing because of the two four D, as as well as um, just allowing sufficient time for those plants to die. Um, that's just in an ideal world, you know. That's that's what I'm going to do. But absolutely, you can go in and broadcast seed and spray glyphosate over the top of it, you're not going to harm it as long as you do it before that seed germinates. Um, so, you know, for most people, I wouldn't worry about, you know, the exact timing of it um, unless you're going in and and tilling the soil, in which case you probably do need to allow, you know, sufficient time for those weeds to die to where you can actually, you know, get your disc to, you know, break up the soil. Because if, you know, depending on the size disc and how heavy of equipment you have, um, that can be a real problem if you don't have, you know, plants that have been, if they've only been dead for a few days and, and you're sitting there trying to disc them, it can be more difficult than if you allow a couple of weeks to pass. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Do, do you need to, I mean, do I need to go in and, and mow off the area before I spray it? Is there anything you need to do, I guess, prior to spraying to prepare, or can you just go in there and, and spray as is? That really depends on um, what you have growing there and how tall the vegetation is. If, if it's, you know, 
if it's relatively short to where you can, you know, get your boom over it, personally, most of the time, I'm probably just going to go in and spray it um, versus trying to mow. Um, you're, you're not hurting anything. You know, if you go in and mow it, let's just say three weeks before you go, you plan to spray that that's not going to hurt anything at all. I definitely would not mow and then spray right after because then you're, you know, you're basically covering up the plants from, you know, preventing them from intaking the herbicide as well. If you, if you want to mow and it's, it's taller vegetation, then absolutely you can go in there and mow and then come back, let's just say three weeks later and spray it. But if the vegetation's short enough that I can get my boom over it, most of the time I'm just going to opt to spray it as is. And then, you know, if I wanted to, if for example, I was doing like no-till top sowing or something, I could spread the seed and then mow it, mow the dead vegetation after I have spread the seed. But most of the time I'm not going to mow ahead of time unless the vegetation is tall that I can't get my boom over the top of it. Okay. What about pre-emergent herbicides? You don't hear a lot of talk of that in the kind of the food plotting world. Um, is that something you recommend or uh, species dependent or what, what's the, what's the situation with pre-emergent herbicides? Yeah, absolutely. So um, pre-emergent herbicides are something that I think a lot of people get, they get spooked about because they think it's you know, just this, you know, wild off the wall thing and they're only used to using glyphosate. Um, but these herbicides can really help you out with your weed control because they prevent you from having to make as many applications throughout the summer or during the winter, depending on the species you're, you're managing and, and what you're doing. Um, they can really end up saving you time and, and increase the benefits of that plot for deer because, you know, by controlling and especially, especially when we're thinking about grasses during the summertime in a uh, broadleaf planting, such as cowpeas or soybeans or lab lab or joint vetch, um, those can really be a major issue. And unless you're willing to spray clethodim, you know, two or three times during the summer, you're, you're probably going to get overrun with those um, annual warm season grasses like foxtail and crabgrass. There's, there's some species that, you know, you might consider using a pre-emergence application during the fall uh, for a cool season planting. But really, for the most part, I'm thinking mostly about warm season plantings uh, when I consider pre-emergence herbicides because there's really great options um, such as uh, Pursuit, which is um, imazethapir, or Prowl, which is pendimethalin. Both of those are, are really good options. Uh, there's also Dual Magnum and Dual 2 Magnum. You know, there's, there's several really great options, regardless of whether you're planting a, um, a broadleaf planting, or even if you're planting something like corn, there's great options there as well. So, yeah, I am considering pre-emergence herbicides and as well as pre-plant incorporated emergent size, which those are the ones that, you know, essentially you spray and then you disc the soil to incorporate it into the soil. You know, I, I definitely am considering using those if there's an option. They're relatively inexpensive. I mean, yes, the, the jug of herbicide costs a fair amount of money, but um, per acre, you could even be saving money if you're having to apply a, you know, post-emergent selective herbicide multiple times throughout the summer compared to just applying uh, say pursuit or prowl one time at the uh, at at the time of planting when you're already out there working on the site. So yeah, I'm definitely considering using pre-emergence herbicides. The the fall plantings there's there's fewer options with mixtures, especially if you're mixing like wheat and clover. 
Um, there's really not an, a good option for a pre-emergent herbicide for that. There are some options for if you're just planting uh, cereal grains such as wheat, oats, or rye. Um, we have some good options there. And then we also have good options for brassicas. Um, Treflan's a, a really common one for brassicas that you could use to uh, control a lot of your problematic weeds. But for the most part, if, if you're only going to look at doing pre-emergence herbicides for one thing, look at doing it for at look at using them for your warm season um, broadleaf plantings. Okay. And let me, I, I guess I, I kind of got ahead of myself here. I'm going to have you back up just a second and, and okay. tell them what, what is a pre-emergent herbicide? I, I should have uh, obviously asked that before I, I got you going on, on when to use well, it. But. <laughs> I took off into the specifics. <laughs> no, that's all right. Yes. I, that's what I asked for, but I, I wasn't thinking about the fact that, you know, there, some of the listeners may not even be familiar with, with what a pre-emergent herbicide is. Yeah. So, you know, most herbicides that we commonly think of, such as glyphosate, clethodim, 2,4-DB, or beauty rack, um, most of those are post-emergence herbicides. So those are those herbicides which, you know, basically have no activity within the soil itself. They're only used for controlling actively growing plants. So um, herbicides, it's actually really interesting. They, they target very specific enzymes within plants, and they essentially, those enzymes are what build amino acids, which are what allow the plant to function. And so, you know, different plants and different types of plants have different amino acids and, and enzymes. And so that's why we're able to be selective with these herbicide applications and, you know, spray something on uh, one plot, you know, spray clethodim on a clover plot and kill the grass, but not any of the clover. It's because that clethodim is targeting a specific um, enzyme within that plant and preventing it from acting. So that's just kind of a, you know, little thing on, on how herbicides work. Um, but post-emergence herbicides, like I said, are, are used on actively growing plants. Pre-emergence herbicides are used on plants which are um, not yet germinated. And essentially what that pre-emergence herbicide does is um, rainfall, you, you know, you spray the herbicide on the ground and rainfall incorporates it into the soil solution, which is just the water in the soil. There are also pre-plant incorporated herbicides, which are similar to pre-emergence, except for the fact that you have to actually work it into the soil um, with disking. You can't just spray it on top of the ground and expect it to work. But um, in general, those pre, pre-emergence herbicides are those that are what we call soil active. And that just simply means that as a weed seedling is starting to germinate, that herbicide um, is able to control that weed seedling in the soil before it actually pops out of the ground. And so you can spray that herbicide and get some length of control, you know, whereas with glyphosate, for example, you spray it one time. And like we said before, you could plant a seed that same day and that seed would grow no problem because there's no soil activity with glyphosate. Um, Compare that with imazethapir, there's soil activity for some species upward of a year after you after you apply that, that, um, that herbicide, which can be really beneficial because it just gives you a longer window to which you don't have to worry about weeds. So for, you know, for example, if we spray imazethapir on a field of joint vetch and cowpeas, um, or soybeans or, you know, name a species, um, that herbicide is going to prevent those annual grasses from germinating for the vast majority of the, of the growing season when we'd be concerned about them. 
And so that single application of um, imazethapir basically just buys us the whole growing season of being relatively weed free, at least with regard to grasses and, and several other broadleaf species. Um, there are some herbicides like imazethapir that is um, both pre-emergence and post-emergence so that, you know, you can spray clover, for example, with imazethapir that will kill um, some weed species within that plot. But in this instance, what we're talking about is just pre-emergence only. And, um, and for those, you're just spraying it on the sole and allowing rainfall to work it into the sole solution. Yeah. And because it is, I guess, so active and, and some of these can, like you said, last for, for quite a period of time. Um, there, I guess there's, there's some consideration there when using these, correct? Because, uh, it may limit what you can come in and plant at a later time. So can, can you speak on that a little bit? Absolutely. So every herbicide label um, is required by law or every herbicide that is sold is required by law to have a label within that label. uh, Generally, there's a lot of good, useful information. You need to read the label if you're going to use it. But there's a chart on most herbicides that that have some sole activity that will show the plant back interval, um, which essentially is how long after you spray a plot with an herbicide, you should plant uh, various species. For example, um, with imazethapir, the minimum plant back interval for wheat is four months, whereas the plant back interval for oats is 18 months. So if you are planting a, you know, a soybean plot, let's just say, and you spray it with imazethapir or pursuit, and you wanted to go back the next, that fall and plant a cool season planting, you should use wheat and not oats because the wheat you know, it's been five months since you sprayed it, let's just say you're past that minimum rotation length, whereas the oats, you're not going to be able to plant oats in that plot until the the following fall after planting. So yeah, definitely the, look at the plant back interval and consider what your rotation is before spraying a pre-emergence herbicide, because you can shoot yourself in the foot with these if you have plans to, you know, double crop a field or something like that. But um, if you're not planning on doing that, or, or you're, you know, you're willing to take the time to read the label and see what it says there. It's pretty easy to work around these. You just have to be, you know, smart with your applications. Yep. Just, just one more reason to reinforce why you should read that herbicide label uh, before you ever, ever start applying it. So no, yes, absolutely. What you're getting into. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I guess from here as we kind of, you know, been on here for, for well over an hour now, I need to kind of wind things down, but um you know, I know a lot of hunters out there planting food plots. You know, we're kind of at the point now in our discussion where you get into, you know, how you're actually going to plant these and uh, traditional tillage versus no-till. And and uh, for a lot of hunters, that decision is made, you know, by lack of equipment. Uh, a, lot, a lot of hunters don't have necessarily a, a tractor and a no-till drill to go out there and, and plant a food plot. So I guess let's kind of, as we wind down, let's kind of talk about that. Some options for hunters planting food plots that, that are limited in the equipment they have. What's kind of some best practices? What, what are some species that'll work uh, as far as just, you know, being able to maybe top sow a food plot versus uh, tra- traditional till? And, and what are some ways we can make sure we're, we're getting that seed to soil contact that we need? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's been a lot of increased conversation about, you know, how we're planting plots and things like that as folks, you know, have become a little bit more worried about soil health and things like that. So, you know, there are some benefits that can come from from using a no-till top sowing method, which is, you know, essentially where you're just throwing seed out on the soil and um, praying for rain is, is pretty much what it, what it goes down to. Um, but if you're in a situation, I, I just want to throw this out there, where you don't have access to no-till planting equipment, um, you know, a no-till drill, and you do have access to um, a disc, of course you can use no-till top sow methods, but, you know, don't necessarily feel bad about using a disc or using conventional methods to plant your food plot. Um, as long as you're, you know, mindful of, of slope and erosion and things like that, and you're not, you know, eroding away a hillside, you know, you planting that food plot is not the worst thing in the world that's ever happened for that soul. There's, you know, millions of acres each year that are planted with conventional tillage. And, and that's, you know, a completely different conversation about whether we should change those methods. But, you know, don't sit here and sweat the little bit of, you know, soul health issue that may be, may or may not be present with you using a disc on that plot. I, I just, I think there's a lot, there's a lot bigger fish to fry with regards to comfort. Uh, conservation and habitat management for deer and other game species. But um, if you're in a situation where you just don't have a disc and you don't have a no-till drill, you may not even have a tractor. No-till top sowing is not a technique that you should overlook. You can have very effective food plots with no-till top sowing, but essentially it comes down to a couple of things to consider. The first thing would be making sure that you get good good kill on any existing plants within that plot because you know if let's just say you spray a field and you wait a little long to to go back in and till it well that tillage will kill a lot of the weeds that have germinated since then if you don't have tillage occurring though your your one shot at controlling weeds uh, for the most part is going to be um, at least those that are existing is going to be with that uh, initial post-emergence burn down treatment. And so you absolutely want to make sure that you have no weeds that are growing within that plot. Um, and that's, that's something I can't overstate enough. Once you've gotten to that point, there are a few different things you can do to potentially increase the amount of seed to soil contact that you're going to be getting. Number one would be burning the field. Now, I know that's something that may be, you know, a little worrisome for a lot of folks if you don't have any equipment, but you know, if we're only talking about burning a little quarter acre patch, you and a buddy can do that and, and have that done in 20 minutes. And, and if you, you wait for timing that the weather's right, you know, the woods, let's just say the woods are still relatively damp in the woods, but that spot that has full sun and everything's completely dead from your herbicide application, that, that can be burned very safely in a very, you know, quick manner. You can also, if, you, if you're not confident with burning, you can go in there with, you know, I've seen folks go in with a rake and scratch the sole a little bit. That that helps. That's time consuming. But really, you know, big picture wise, what I'm thinking about is, you know, those, those additional treatments help. But the biggest thing is just make sure that you get good control initially and then pick a species that is able to grow well in the condition that you're putting it. So understand that you're going to have to have a relatively small seed you're going to need to put that seed out relatively close to a rain event. You can't be planting a plot no-till top sowing and, and it not rain for two weeks. That generally does not work out very well. Um, but if you pick a small seeded species and you have everything killed on the plot and you seed it, you know, 
using a slightly heavier seeding rate because you are going to have some germination rate uh, decreases with not having a you know completely clean seed bed. Um, you can have very effective food plots in, in a no-till top sowing situation. And in fact, you know some of the best hunting plots that you know I've helped work on and, and create on, on people's properties. That's that's how we still plant them. Even if we have equipment, they're just too small to get in there with a tractor. And so, you know, we essentially spray it with backpack sprayers and then choose species which are small. And so going back to the species selection thing, typically I'm thinking about if I want to do a warm season plot, which I'm typically not as concerned with planting in the warm season. But if I'm going to for well, you know one reason or another, to me, joint vetch is really the only option. You can also add Alice clover to that if you would like. but Joint vetch is really, an Alice clover are really the only two species small enough to be successful no-till top sowing um, in a, you know, small food plot in like a throw and grow situation, let's just say. For, for fall planting zone, for cool season blends, I'm primarily thinking about annual clovers, perennial clovers, and cereal grains. Um, particularly, uh, wheat and cereal rye do fairly well no-till top sowed. Crimson clover does fairly well no-till top sowed. Ladino clover does fairly well no-till top sowed. Brassicas can do all right. I've had mixed results planting brassicas no-till top sowing, but, you know, you can have some decent results. But, you know, really just thinking about smaller seeds and, and understanding that you will have to bump up that seeding rate slightly to make sure that you, you know, have, have good stand establishment. Yeah, like. 10%, 20%, do you have a recommendation there as far as? Yeah, I would, I would probably say 20%, especially with the clovers. You're not really going to hurt yourself going heavier. If you're planting either brassicas or cereal grains, there's something to be said about, you know, especially cereal grains mixed with clovers. You don't want to go too much over that, you know, let's just say 20% bump. But with clovers, I mean, the seedlings are going to outcompete yourself and sure, it may cost you slightly more, but, you know, you're not hurting yourself bumping it up, you know, let's just say 30 or 40% just to make sure that you have good stand establishment. One thing I would say with no-till plantings and, you know, there's a lot of products on the market that are, you know, geared towards this sort of, you know, throw it out on the dirt and and let it grow and, you know, not having to do a bunch of disturbance. Some of those products are fine, but just make sure that you don't have ryegrass. That <laughs> yeah. These products are the ones that are most likely to have ryegrass in them. And, and in fact, most products, if you pick something up off the shelf and it says, you know, no-till planting, you know, whatever the company wants to call it, um, it's probably going to have ryegrass in it. And ryegrass is not something that you want to plant because it's not nearly as attractive to deer and it's, it's, you know, can be a fairly noxious weed. So that would be my one recommendation is to at least not necessarily a hundred percent steer clear. I guess I, I won't say that, but be, uh, be skeptical if you're using commercial, you know, throw and grow tr- type products. Yeah. Yeah. I know what's in the mix. Yeah. Cause yeah. Yeah. You, you might have a green plot, but it's not, it's not going to be necessarily uh, ideal for, for deer. And like you said, yeah, I've, I've dealt with the, the ryegrass infestations and in dove fields and stuff here in Georgia. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a big one, but, but you can, you know, don't be discouraged if you don't have planting equipment. 
Um, just make sure that you, you know, take time to control those weeds and choose species mixes that make sense. And, you know, absolutely, you know, do the other steps. Don't just skip soil. Don't skip soil amendment. Don't skip soil testing. Don't, you know, skip making sure that you're getting sunlight on that plot. You absolutely have to do all those other steps. But, you know, if your one shortcoming is you don't have a tractor, that's not a reason that you can't have a successful food plot. You're just going to have to approach it a little differently. Yeah. Yeah. You could get, uh, I've gotten hardcore on mine before and actually went out there with a, uh, a garden tiller and uh, <laughs> worked it up. And yeah. it, it takes a little time, but it, it, you know, it gets the job done, but you hey, mentioned there's, there's absolutely worse ways to spend your time than, you know, messing around with the dirt and, and planting a food plot. So oh, nothing absolutely. wrong with that. <laughs> no, no. You mentioned earlier now, you know, for whatever reason, the person just, there's just not a way they can get in there and, and burn, burn that off after they've sprayed it. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier about potentially, you know, seed and broadcasting and then mowing, uh, mowing the weeds after the fact. Is that a viable option? Yeah, I, I definitely think it is, um, especially if you're picking mixes that have small seeds anyway. Um, if you go in and spray it and then, you know, two weeks later, let's just say broadcast and, and mow, I think, you know, that increase in the amount of organic material um, on top of the seed can, can help with germination some. I, I don't necessarily know that it's, you know, 100% necessary to do it, but uh, if you have the, the plant material there anyway, I would definitely rather, you know, see you spread the seed and then mow compared to mowing and then spreading the seed. And I think that's an important distinction. If you're, right. if you're in a situation where there is a bunch of plant material that's actively growing, um, and that's part of why I said I, I personally favor spraying and then mowing if necessary afterwards, unless it's just really, really tall stuff, because you're going to end up with a little bit better kill by not, you know, covering all the, covering the, the actively growing plants with thatch. That may be a little bit different if you've got a bunch of perennials like fescue there. You may need to mow and then come back and spray. But, you know, for your typical, you know, nine times out of 10 situation, I'm going to favor spraying. And then, you know, if I'm in a no-till situation, I'm, I'm absolutely going to take advantage of that um, plant material by spreading the seed and then mowing if I need to. Yeah. Yeah. Because if, if you've mowed prior to seeding, then a lot of that seed is going to end up, you know, on top of on top of that duff layer of of clippings that you just created. So yeah, it makes exactly. Makes exactly. Yeah. And, and doing it the other way around is, is not much different than, you know, when you sow a, a new yard and grass seed and you cover it in straw, it's going to help, help hold some of that, that moisture in at least, at least in theory. Yeah. And, and I definitely think it does. Um, we've played around a little bit with, you know, kind of the, you know, throw and mow seeding, if you will. And, you know, especially when you use appropriate species mixes, I mean, it can be very effective with, with regards to, you know, making sure that you have good, you know, not only seed to soil contact, but also making sure that you retain that moisture that's, that's necessary for the plants to grow. So uh, that can be a great method. If you, you know, have a spot that you, you want to plant and you can, you can get in there and mow it or, even get in there with a weed eater or something like that, but don't have the uh, big equipment to, to disc it up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mark, man, thanks so much for taking time out to come on the show. We're, uh, 
man, we're pushing an hour and a half here now, and and there's so much more we could cover with regard to food plots. But uh, I think we've we've hit on the main things that I wanted to uh, to cover in this episode, and uh, and maybe if if you're uh, willing to to jump back on here at a later date, we could definitely um, continue this conversation into uh, yeah more more food plot uh, planning stuff because like I said, we've we've only scratched the surface here, but I think think there's been a, a lot of great information shared here today. So I, I appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, anytime, always enjoy talking and uh, hopefully folks got a few ideas for, you know, some things they can s- consider with planting season this, uh, this spring. It's definitely right around the corner and it's time to be pulling soil test and putting lime out and getting your equipment ready and hopefully getting plots in the ground here soon. Yep. Yeah, it is about that time. And uh, yeah, Mark, for for those interested in in keeping up with you and, and maybe what you're doing there at the University of Tennessee, is there a good place for them to do that? Yeah. So, um, geez, I gotta <laughs> gotta pull my phone up to look at what really. I'm I'm not on Facebook anymore. I'm only on um, on Instagram. We we do a lot of um, you know, as I'm sure most people are aware, you know, a lot of the stuff we publish is in the uh, in the food plot column of. Uh, of quality white tails. Um, if people are interested in following me on Instagram, I post some stuff on habitat management there and things like that going on with research. It's, um, Mark Turner, four, four, two, um, is my Instagram, but, uh, you know, we don't have a lab Twitter or anything like that. Um, I don't think, uh, I don't think Dr. Harper probably <laughs> wants to, wants to get a Twitter for himself, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, I, I do share a fair amount of the research stuff that we're doing on my personal page. So, um, yeah, that's probably the the best, easiest place to go to to get, you know, a little bit of a taste of what we're working on. So we're always doing something. We've been been implementing, uh, got everything ranging from, um, you know, four stand improvement treatments to different fire timings that we've been testing. So we got a lot of a lot of cool stuff coming out. And, and of course, food plot information as well. So uh, should have some should have some good information to share as the as the years go by. Well, good deal. Yeah, we'll be sure to put your Instagram link there in the show notes. And uh, yeah, as as you mentioned there, uh, Mark writes our food plot uh, articles for for the magazine, so you can check those out. And we we try to get those on the on the website as well. Maybe a little later, you know, once the the magazine has has hit stands and everything, we'll uh, put a lot of that on the on the website as well. So you can you can check that out at deerassociation.com and. But yeah, Mark, I enjoyed it as always, and uh, I'm sure the listeners will as well. So appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again, Brian. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Mark Turner. Uh, Thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Uh, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to deerassociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So We would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at deerassociation.com. 
From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website, covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends. Mm-hmm.